0: Today I can tell you we have got a tremendously fun show for you. Mysteries of Comic Books continues as I peel the curtain back and reveal to you that, that some comics that you have enjoyed and loved even uh, that, that have names on them are not, in fact, the names that you're reading, but they are a more important, more possibly famous, more accomplished name. The pseudonyms of comics, the the non de plumes, the 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 secret identities of so many different artists and writers who have come at you um, through through a different name or a different identity. Uh, it befuddled it, it me as a kid. I didn't find out who some of these people actually were until you know in recent years and today I'm here to pull it all back with you and 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 enjoy more of the mystery of comics as we reveal it coming up and here we are again at another rob's observations i am your host rob leifeld I love Rob observations because they are my view, my personal view, of all the things that I love in pop culture, comic books, movies, TV shows. Now the giant, all-encompassing streaming—is it—is 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 it TV or is it streaming? Um, including, you know, Invincible, Peacemaker, Mandalorian, every Marvel show, every DC show, all this stuff, right? So I come here with a perspective of thirty five or 33. I, it's one of the two years in comic books. I got hired right out of high school. Thank God. Cause I was not qualified to do one other single thing. And, uh, in case you're wondering, I delivered pizzas. I bust tables. I worked construction for six months, all manner of jobs to keep the dream going, to keep, uh, Keep paying bills to help out with the family while I was able to do samples, which brought me this amazing career that I wouldn't trade for anything. I've had the best, very best time, and we visit twice a week talking about some news of the day and some kind of, uh, like today, mystery of comics, some, some, some stuff along the way. I've charted my course of my comics. If you go back to the very first episode of Raw Observations, I'm telling you about the very first comics I picked up and the weird trip that it took me on because I'm like, wait, the Avengers are fighting the Justice League, but they weren't. They were echoes. I call them echoes. And I take you down that path and I've taken you at, uh, all over my career, all the all the different um, chairs I've sat in as a young fledgling penciler, as a fan favorite artist, as a... You know, writer, artist, uh, as a best-selling record breaker, as a publisher, as a creator, as as a partner, uh, as a big-time producer for other labels. I mean, I have worn so many hats uh, along the, on, along the way. I've seen my stuff come a lot, come to life in video games. I have seen them as Legos. I have seen them as action figures. I have seen them as hot toys. I have seen them. In movies, in cartoons, uh, it's 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 a blast. Uh, right now, currently, my life has never been more exciting. Drawing, uh, as I've as is my passion. Uh, this year alone, continuing more Deadpool comics. Uh, Deadpool Bad Blood, which is my graphic novel from 2017, which charted number one. It was twenty five dollars. I knew at the time it was going to be out of certain people's hands. It was fun. I got to do uh, book signings at like bookstores, uh, like Barnes and Noble. And it was, I, I'd always kind of wanted to have like a, a bookstore signing and I did, and it was fantastic. And And now we're breaking that up into five different issues, which will then get you ready for the sequel, Deadpool batter blood. In the meantime, I'm doing a bunch of stuff with my image, uh, catalog, uh, c- uh creations, profit brigade, blood strike, all blood wolf, all of the, uh, Big uh, titles that are are hitting on their 30-year anniversaries of when they were introduced. Did you know that Bloodstrike 3 was introduced in Youngblood 3? Well, there you go. Did you know Profit debuted in the pages of Youngblood 2? There you go. Uh, ditto all of these characters. Brigade launched in the summer of 1992. Another million-dollar mega-seller. Uh, obviously, the 90s were very, very good to me. So so this year is very busy with the Image Comics 30th stuff, My more of my Marvel stuff. I really kind of just uh, play in the sandbox of the stuff that I uh, created, it, it, it's, uh, I'm not sure that I'll ever tell every story that I ever want to tell, but I'm going to try. I'm going to die, literally die trying. If I die tomorrow, know that I literally did die trying. Um, the, the, uh, uh, the famous artist, Kurt Swan of Superman, Superboy, Legion fame, just a hall of fame, DC icon. He was drawing supreme at the time of his death and his family called to tell us, that he had passed away and that he was drawing the book. And and, and I've covered this before, I think, in an Alan Moore-themed podcast because Alan was writing it now Alan specifically wanted to see if we could get this hollowed, you know, Kurt Swan of, of Superman fame to actually do Alan's story and, in fact... Kurt had agreed to it, but sadly passed. And no, we have never asked for those pages. We didn't ask to see them. It, they didn't need to tell us that. They they literally just said he passed away. And while he was um in his end days, he was drawing uh, Supreme. I've always kind of romanticized it. That's how I will also pass, drawing a comic book page or in the middle of drawing a comic book page or on the break. Of drawing a comic book page, because I truly have never lost my passion. I have seen so many in my business lose their passion. They're big-time talkers. They talk about comic books and they may even publish some comic books, but they haven't drawn comics. They don't, they don't know the grind, and it is a grind. And this brings me to something I was thinking of this weekend that you could think about when you think of every single person who draws a comic for you. This is every this is an umbrella statement. It covers everybody. I had been really avoiding, uh, uh, I, I, had been, I had been avoiding, um, really interfacing with, uh, w- with, a page this weekend. I just kept, I looked at it and I just walk away. I'd look at it. I just walked away. And then finally Saturday afternoon, I grabbed it. I grabbed the board and I plopped down in my beanbag and I started to draw this page, uh, from this project. And, uh, and I was like, what is the deal? Why did I dance around this? And, and I, I'm sitting there, uh, My I, I brought in one of my beanbags, I, I've, I've been drawing in beanbags the entirety of my career. I drew new mutants pages on beanbags, Hawk and Dove, X-Force, Youngblood, Captain America, you name it. It's very relaxing for me, I've always used a portable lapboard much more, probably 90% of the time as opposed to a sitting desk. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've, I've uh, visited the desk a little more, it just feels a little more sometimes more formal or, or, or gets the job done. You know, I'm just looking what will help me climb that hill and what exactly is that hill. And on that beanbag on Saturday, I pivoted. I looked over my lawn. I I love a good green, freshly cut lawn. The gardeners had done a great job there. My wife and I even this weekend were like, has our lawn ever looked better? (laughs) This is the stuff you do when you're older. you like, admire your lawn. So anyway, uh, I had positioned it. I had a nice view. I'm about to draw and I'm just sitting there going, what is the deal? And I'll tell you what the deal is. And this is part of the umbrella, the umbrella concept. Every uh, artist and and to some degree writers as well, but I'll I'll tell you the difference between those two right now. And it really comes down to speed, but uh, it's a lonely job. Once you commit to filling the bottom, the top of that page to the bottom of that page, you are committing to just isolation. It really isn't something you can do with a lot of distractions. When I draw, I don't listen to anything that I haven't already seen um, or or the radio. Uh, If it's a movie, it's got to be something that I've already seen or I find myself listening to a lot of repeats when I share with you guys that I have so many cartoons from my youth or old shows or even like my $6 million man collection. I pop those in to have those going. I pretty much know all the ins and outs. It's just fun to occasionally look up and revisit something, but it's nothing new. It's nothing fresh. It's, I'm not watching the new season of Ozark or 1883 or, uh, you know, succession, nothing new. Uh, it, 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 I can't absorb that when I'm drawing because I have to look up, I have to watch. I want to pay attention to all the storytelling, but generally drawing is very lonely. It's a very lonely business. Um, whether you're drawn on an iPad or you're drawn on Bristol board, or you're painting in an easel, it requires a certain level of concentration and determination that you're going to get through that page. And very little uh, distractions can be done. Sometimes I think I can talk on the phone, but most of the time that fails. If I do engage in talking on the phone, I the phone call dominates and I get very little done on the board. It is uh, it is very much a lonely business. And you know, once you get to it, you're committing to hours and hours most of the time I have the news on, whether it's the radio or the television, because you know, the news really repeats again and again and again, and you know, but it, it just kind of gives you comfort. And and uh, so many, uh, I think one of the reasons that all of us love going to conventions so much is that we get to interact with other people uh, who create the work. I, I've, I've read in the last decade, in the last 10 years especially, with stuff like FaceTime that artists get on FaceTime and they getting group chats and talk while they draw, which I imagine is a bunch of guys with their heads down looking at their boards, which, you know, I have yet to try that. I'm sure that that can work to some extent, but it's not going to get the entire job done. It is a lonely business. It is a very lonely, isolating business and, and the creativity and the challenges of perfecting that creativity and pulling off those shots and the storytelling and the inking and the effects uh, just requires isolation which is loneliness, and that's why, especially after I told my wife 33, 35 years of this, and a lifetime of drawing prior to that, uh, you know, it's, it's, the, the the more you approach it, the less inviting it is, and I'm always trying to challenge myself and grow, and, and thanks to an, my, my audience, who has, has enjoyed my comics for so long, they've told me that they see me growing, and that they see my work advancing and that's fantastic and especially I can hear that on social media when a book of mine comes out and uh and it's 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 almost like giving birth like getting the x-force one shot the most recent thing that I released which was on the heels of the snake eyes and the Archie comic shield which ended up being a one shot um every time something comes out you you do and goes to the printer you feel a, a tremendous uh just effort has left your body and then to, to get it back, to receive it back and enjoy it in that fashion is really um, the most satisfying part of the entire exchange. And then hearing how people enjoyed it is, is is the reaffirmation to go back into the lab, whether it's your couch, your desk, your beanbag and re-engage again and create. And so just, just, just uh, get, give a special hand to whoever comic books, whatever comic books you're enjoying. Now, what about the writers? Because I was going to say to ever whatever comic books in, that you're enjoying from, whatever writers you're enjoying them from, and artists that you're enjoying them from. The writers, having been uh, a, a writer, I think some of the best stuff I've written was the Prophet stuff that I did with Stephen Platt or my Hawkman uh, arc that I did with an, a fantastic draftsman, artist, illustrator named Joe Bennett back uh, 10 years ago. Look, I can write a Hawkman issue 22 pages in a day and get everything I want. I may have a day of walking around making sure all the pieces fit in my head, but once I sit down, you know, maybe two bursts, one to page 10, and then page 10 to page 22. But a writer can write something in a manner of days. That same effort that's laid out in a manner of days is going to take, you know, 24 days, 22 days, basically a page day uh, for the artist to complete. So that's that month long, roughly month long journey. If you work in the weekends, again, it's like a screenplay. Some guys who are really prolific, they can write a screenplay in a couple weeks. That movie may take six months to get made. Uh, I am certain that all the adaptations of Dune have taken much longer than Dune took to write. I mean, it's just, it's that exchange that once you bring something to life, whether it's on the page or whether it's in the form of film, it's going to take a lot more because there are so many more artists. But speaking of film, when you go to a film set, and of course I love uh, the the times that I've been able to go to film sets, whether it's on stuff that I created or stuff that I was just a guest at, uh, it's very collaborative and you have everyone working as one giant like working appendage. All the fingers are working to work the one hand that's going to create For you, the images that you see, the cinematographer, the lighter, the sound technician, the director, the script uh, supervisor, the actors, I mean, and everyone in the middle that I left out. All the amazing, you know, uh, uh, makeup artists, uh, the, the, the special effects people, everyone's working together. There's a collaborative effort. Um, It can be longer, maybe slightly more monotonous, but it is collaborative. There is a sense of camaraderie. And then when everyone breaks, maybe somebody, they all go out to the bar and they all talk about the experiences of the day. That's not what happens in isolationism. Now you're like, Rob, you ran a studio. I did, and I still needed to get most of my work done in isolationism. The bullpen area that we had at Extreme Studios was to help facilitate so many of the young talent. And one of the reasons I loaded up on Amazing Anchors uh, finishers like Dan Panosian and Danny Mickey and Art Taber was that they would guide the John Sabals, the Marlo Alcaiza, the Norm Ratman, the Larry Stucker, Stucker, uh, Jaime Mendoza, that they would help guide them that you could, I mean, no better place to find out how to perfect your craft other than going to people who were really good at their craft and could tell you how better to achieve maybe something that you're trying with myself. And uh, a guy like uh, Marat Michaels, we had really strong storytelling. The two of us are very strong storytelling page designers. And that became kind of the uh, the thrust of what I built my studio on. And of course, there was camaraderie and breaks and lunches and dinners. And they were fun. But uh, when it came time to get stuff done, people isolated themselves. Inkers have it less uh, crazy. It's still isolationism. Because you have to focus on that tool that you're using, especially if it's, uh, uh, you know, a croquo, a dip pen and some India ink and sloshing that all over and, and making sure those lines are razor sharp or splattering or brushing the, the, the brush effects or just filling in blacks. I mean, that stuff is, again, isolationism, but the, the you are not construct, you are polishing the construction. Sometimes maybe you are finishing the drawing. So, again, you're applying uh, more thought work to that but again guys who are doing comics we live in isolationism it's a lonely lonely business so thank whoever you see whoever you know that does this because they committed to this lonely endeavor because it's their passion and uh and their passion can absolutely be something that they've used to pay their bills and to better their families and to build their livelihoods of course but it does not take away how lonely it is when you're in a studio watching people record music again you've got multiple sound technicians you've got um you know you've got your your fellow artists working with again i just cannot uh uh you know communicate enough the isolationism that that artists who are drawing and creating pages and perfecting whatever storytelling and styles uh the loneliness that they encompass so remember that it's a, it can be a little tricky i trust me it it can be a lot tricky uh so today speaking of the people who give you uh the the work that you like we're gonna peel back the curtain on some of those mysteries behind some of these names that you may or may not have heard of but uh the the prior to that i want to thank you guys for the strong immense incredible reaction you had to just the most our most recent podcasts have just met with um So much of your favor. You guys have been very vocal. The reactions and the engagement are off the chart on the greatest era, the best era podcast. Who knew that the nineties had such a giant reactive force. And I I don't put the nineties in a recency bias category, which is that which happened. You know, the most recent is the one that people favor. That is the entire crux of the recency bias theory, which applies to actors, sports, art, um, political events. The, uh, the thing is that, I mean, who knew that an era of comic books 30 years ago would be so embraced? I looked at all the data, fan engagement, creativity, and sales. I told you, I, when I when I brought all those together, there is no, they're, hands down, the 90s are an avalanche of just sh- tremendous success. And why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't they be? I, I guess after I put it out there, when I recorded it, I thought, man, I'm gonna get some brush back because it's kind of the era that I'm the most, you know, prominent in as well. Me and my peers, but I really looked at it again: fan engagement, creativity, character creation, story creation, and sales. And the fan engagement is huge. When I tell you guys that that I am inter- being introduced to your families and your kids all across. The nation. As I traveled last summer from Florida to Texas to Arizona to Chicago to Los Angeles to New York City, I saw so many. There are there are families passing down their passions one to the other to the other, and they that what what the father loved, he is succeeding at getting the son to love or explore or you know to enjoy. And so you know, it's it's interesting to me that an era that was so apologized for. Is now so openly celebrated, and it's because you guys grew up and you found your own voice. And maybe you were intimidated by the bullies of that era, and there were many bullies because there was so much jealousy, and people who had success were dragged by the people who wished they had that success. And then there was the entire, as I've said, and no, I will never give Wizard its entire podcast. What a waste of my air. They. they were so corrupted so easily so quickly and then they wanted to become tastemakers and they wanted to take things they liked and make those things the most popular or as many of them have told me they wanted to take the things that they were getting paid the most to push and put those over the top so then they could show other people if you pay us we'll push your stuff too and that also involved tearing things down and again along with uh, my, my my buddy Steve Jeppy, who runs Diamond Distribution, who told me in the middle of the nineties, it's really a shame overstreet price guide, which was the predominant price guide of its age, and has, and is still, isn't that great? It was it was circumvented and and it was put in the shadow of Wizard when Wizard was at, at its peak. But Wizard died. It was destroyed. It crashed. It burned. Um, and 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 was no no more, no longer. And I mean, that's like a decade in the rearview mirror. I mean, and it was a massive wipeout. Everyone saw it coming. They could no longer pull all of their shenanigans once social media, um, you know, hit because so many people were able to express their own, you know, uh, experiences outside of what they were telling you. And, and, And now you could like get the 411 without waiting 30 days for them to fill you with their complete... Uh, you know, agenda, agendified news, what they liked. You could tell when they skewed heavy into D.C., they wanted you to like D.C. more and they, and, 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 or some independent company or whoever was buying the big bunch of ads or doing whatever deals they did with them. Overstreet was back on top. It is still, I've done covers to the recent Overstreet handbooks. They're, they are a storied, uh, you know, very storied and very hollowed institution. And they would always, you know, at least somewhat appreciate what you had as it should be. And if you're watching these auctions of the last two years that we've talked about so often on this show, the, the, the auctions alone will tell you that there is very little depreciation. There's only appreciation in these valuables and, and they're accumulating at, 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 at a, at a rate that's hard to keep up with. But the 90s has really thrived. 30 years later, it is an era that is more uh, celebrated than ever before. And why wouldn't it be? It's super fun. Whether it's Doomsday or Bane or Breaking Batman's Back or all of the fun big DC events or Age of Apocalypse or the rise of Image Comics and the launch of Youngblood and Wildcats and Shadowhawk and Spawn and Savage Dragon and Cyberforce and Wetworks. What an exciting time. You know, all of the, I mean, artist pushing the boundaries double entire issues of double page splashes splash pages splashing images we made comics as fun as we possibly could and then the, the minute that corporate um yahoo's took over they wanted things more structured what is that word um the, the 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 storytelling you know uh let's just call it constipated storytelling where they would take four issues to tell you one story that was really pushed because then they could package things together. But it was it, 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 like breaking it up into multiple chapters, um, compressed, compressed, decompressed, whatever. It's, it's, it was just, it was a miserable time. in the sales, as I shared with you uh, in, in the last, in, in the biggest era and, and gave you like the sales for stuff like for World War Hulk or for House of M or for Wolverine Origins, they were a fraction of what people were loving when people were loving the comics the most as the, as much as they did in the '90s. Again, you guys came just an avalanche of support and and uh, reading by all of your comments across all my social media. It was just it it was uh it was really the the same seven year period with give or take a year on each side that 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 I laid out, and you guys just. Uh, really showed up and thank you thank you for that that's so exciting so so what I'm going to do today is reveal some uh, a mystery some mysteries of comics for sure and and here's the deal what if I told you that uh what if I said the name Steve Apollo Adam Austin Bajorn Heine <laughs> um or Bajorn Hein uh Gemini Validar, or even Paul Scott What if I told you they were all on some level, some of your very favorite artists of all time? What if I told you that those names were some of your absolute favorites? Would would you even, would you recognize who any of those people are? Or would you go like, oh yeah, sure, I know, I know who, (laughs) I know who Steve, who Steve Apollo is. He was my favorite. Well, I'm going to tell you some stories. I'm going to tell you some stories about, about my own, uh, discovery of, of these, these different, um, of these, these different, uh, uh, names that I'm going to give you. And, and, uh, I'm going to tell I'm going to start in, in 1979, I rolled up to U-Totem, U-Totem specifically. Now U-Totem is where I got days of future past. A lot of the great X-Men, you know, era comics, I had moved from the hollowed, you know, four light crosswalk, you know, um, intersection that was Broadway and Magnolia from the 7-Eleven liquor store, Stater Brothers. We had moved when I was nine, summer of Star Wars, and it became all about Foodland and Utotem. Utotem was behind me a couple blocks. Foodland was two blocks ahead of me on the corner. And between that shelves and the, the shelves and the spinner racks there, um, you know, that was just, uh, that was just amazing. And uh, I grabbed, I, I specifically because so often I remember reading and flipping through these characters when I walked home. And the way I was walking home, I, I, I would it was such a common, you know, behind me, you totem is like six blocks, but that was all neighborhood streets. So I would just go to two houses to my left, turn the corner and walk. And then when I got to the end of the street, at the end of those six blocks, I turned Hung a right, and I knew I was uh, I, I, I was heading right to, to U-Totem, a couple blocks away. And I always remember the walks home. I would always remember the walks home because I was madly flipping through my books. I wasn't on a skateboard. I wasn't on a bike. I loved to just walk, chew gum, and flip through the comics and get a taste of what I was going to anticipate so that when I got home and plopped over my bed or in my beanbag in my chair, I would have a greater idea of what I was about to absorb. I went in and I got Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, which I've already established through several of my of my podcasts. I established how much I absolutely adored the Legion of Superheroes. Well, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes had a great cover uh, by Joe Staten and Dick Giordano. It's got Superboy punching through all of the different older covers, stat background of other issues. And Lightning Lad and Brainiac 5, Saturn Girl, Cosmic Boy, uh, Chameleon Boy, Shadow Lass are all behind S- S- Superboy. I mean, I loved I, I loved all of the Legion of Superheroes. I thought they were all exceptionally well done, well drawn, well illustrated. Well, you guys, I popped it open. I popped open Superboy and Legion of Heroes number 250. And, and there was a really nice illustration and, and a casual flip through. Saw some really polished art. Um, I mean, great action. Uh, I mean, all of the Legion, the Legionnaires are are, are really well represented. And it's by a guy I've never heard of before. But how could I never hear of this guy? This work is so accomplished. The figure work, the backgrounds, the faces, the expression, the storytelling, the action. It says, Steve Apollo. Steve Apollo is the story in layouts. Okay? Steve Apollo. Well, that caught my eye because I'd never heard of Steve Apollo, but pretty quickly I figured Steve Apollo was one of my favorite artists to ever draw comics because as I flip through this issue right now, and there's this uh, page in the middle of the issue where Superboy and mon attack this creature called Omega, and they have a giant super th- I mean, Superboy and Mon-El, Mon-El are two of the s- most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe. Strength, speed, all of it. I mean, they can, you know, you guys know Superman is like, the strongest and and mon was even stronger um because of his exposure cuz he came from a colony uh adjacent to, to Krypton he was a cousin of Super Superboy well mon gets this crap beat out of him by Omega okay and uh and and even Superboy as he, as he examines him says that's amazing amazing Omega's blow was so powerful the shockwave got gave mon a concussion even though he's supposed to be invulnerable so wow they're up against it so he brings back, he brings back Monel, and the entire legion rallies around him. Timberwolf, you know, Lightning Lad, Saturn Girl, Colossal Boy, Star Boy, Ultra Boy, Dawn Star, and uh, they're they're pretty panicked at what's what's at hand. But really great issue, again by Steve Apollo. Who the hell? This, you know, at the time, I, I think I think Battlestar Galactica had just wrapped, and I'm like Apollo, like Apollo, cool cool sounder name, Steve Apollo. Dave Hunt, who I had seen ink a bunch of stuff, he was inking John Byrne on Marvel Team-Up for years. Really, you know, polished inker. But while his inks are prevalent, the figure work, the faces, are, the, the backgrounds, the action are outstanding. And and it may have been somewhat familiar, but couldn't put my finger on it. Steve Apollo. Well, lo and behold, Steve Apollo is not done yet. He is still with us as of Superboy and the Legion issue 2. Fifty one. That this, it continues. Steve Apollo's story and art again, and again. Now we've got Brainiac five weighing in, and then more of the Legion goes to hunt down and confront Omega. And I'm going to tell you something. Very action driven. Very uh, the issue. Superboy and the Legion two hundred and fifty and two hundred and fifty one are very action driven. Ultra Boy who can use one superpower at a time, super strength, super speed and vulnerability, but you know he can he's like Superman, he's like Superboy and Monel, Superman in that he he can just use one at a time. Dawnstar, one of their most um catchy uh female, she had a great visual. Uh uh she's a tracker. Um uh she she and Superboy and Ultra Boy go into space to battle Omega. Omega finally makes his way to Earth. He's battling all sorts of different ships who are trying to keep him from 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 uh, invading. Timberwolf gets on the action. In on the action. Starboy, Colossal Boy, Colossal Boy at his most giant man, tallest is felled. Um, Wildfire, Karate Kid. The entire legion gets in on this. It is just loads of action, loads of spectacular action, and uh, and 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 you know has a terrific resolve and Wildfire, everybody gets in on the action, the entire Legion. Superboy 251, 250, killer anniversary story, Splintered 2. Steve Apollo came and went, issue 252, he's gone. Joe Staten, who was doing the covers, is now on the inside. Dave Hunt is inking him. What happened to Steve Apollo? I am 11 years old, and I wouldn't know better, okay? It's, 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 uh, it's above my pay grade. It's above my fan grade. I didn't have anybody. There wasn't a comic store I was going to. There wasn't some clerk that that, that, that had a friend in New York City who could hook me up. And that was still a couple of years away. I'm not into comic stores yet. I am literally just digesting what I receive off the newsstand. Well, around the same time, I am getting uh, a bunch of Marvel comics with these amazing covers, and uh, and and these covers are uh are by uh I mean it's the Hulk okay the 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 covers to the Hulk um there are there are uh are, I mean really good covers to the Hulk great figure work um and I'm talking the covers to Hulk 271 he's battling stingray okay uh you know the cover to uh let's see the 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 cover to Hulk 215. Okay, um. Th- these are fantastic covers, just just really, really well done. Oh, sorry, two twenty-one. I said two two seventy-one. Hulk two fifteen. Hulk two twenty-one. Uh, he, th- th- there's a cover to Marvel Team Up number eighty with Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. The covers to Nova. Nova was one of my favorite comic books. I don't talk enough about Nova, but I loved Nova. Um, oh my gosh, and and they're all signed. And there's a cover to What If with Nova and the Fantastic Four. And they're all signed Validar, V-A-L-I-D-A-R, Validar. Well, check this out. I didn't know who Validar was until about six years ago. I was like, who's this cat who does the cool covers? And these are just a few of the covers he did. But Validar was, he was good. Validar was crushing it. V-A-L-I-D-A-R. Well, Validar, turns out, is one of my favorite artists named Rich Buckler. Rich Buckler was the artist on the Fantastic Four when I started buying the Fantastic Four. Fantastic Four 147, Prince Namor splashing up out of the ocean, charging right at the Thing. Who's standing on a rock and human torches flying in between them. And Prince Namor is super duper pissed off. One of my favorite visuals, one of my favorite characters, one of the multiple hothead, bad temper guys that I liked, which at the time was Luke Cage, Prince Namor, Wolverine, and The Thing. All of them and Hercules, all of them kind of temperamental guys. I was a temperamental guy. I like those guys. I like the hotheads because I may be a hothead myself, but I've worked on it for years, doctor. So uh the thing is Rich Buckler not only did Fantastic Four, he did great issues of the Avengers. He uh went on and did one of my favorite giant size treasury edition books, Superman versus Shazam. He went on he did multiple issues of DC Comics Presents with Superman, with Shazam, with Captain Marvel. He then became the regular artist and launched. They gave him his own kind of, sh- you know, uh, showcase, uh, for all-star squadron and which was DC's, uh, all of their World War II heroes, the Justice Society and everyone who wasn't associated at the time all together under one banner. It was very, very, uh, successful. Roy Thomas had come over from Marvel who, and he had really been super successful doing all the World War II heroes over at Marvel. The Invaders title was a massive success, ran for many years. Now he came over with Rich Buckler and launched uh, All-Star Squadron. And Rich uh, Rich co-created Deathlock um, and did a million covers for Marvel, for the Avengers, the Defenders, for Spider-Man, for Marvel Team-Up, for Captain America, I mean, I'm looking right now at his resume and I can, I mean, this guy worked all the time. Um, Just crazy, uh, in-demand, fantastic, again, from interiors, always drawing team books, always doing the tough stuff. Captain America and the Falcon, Man-Thing, Submariner, Planet of the Apes, Ghost Rider, The Inhumans, of course, The Inhumans, Iron Man, Daredevil, uh, he covered it all, Conan, I mean, multiple issues of Marvel 2-in-1, Marvel Team-Up, The Flash, Freedom Fighters, uh, the Batman Family, The Defenders. Oh, there's an entire run of great covers that he provided for The Avengers. Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, all by Rich Buckler. But why, how did I not know that he was Validar? Well, again, he was doing these covers in 1978, 1979. I I had nobody to tell me otherwise. The inks on these covers are by really great polished um, Artists, the, the the Validar covers that I'm looking at were inked by Al Milgram, by Joe Rubenstein, uh, by by uh, Joe Sinnott. Really great polishes on each. It didn't strike me as Rich Buckler. They just looked really good. Well, let me give you a glimpse as to why Rich Buckler was using the pseudonym, uh, a, a pen name, and, and I'll get back to just who Steve Apollo is in a minute, all right? Just hang on. In his own words... In his own words, okay? And, and and part of what I'm going to read to you here, I already mentioned the word Adam Austin, okay? In Rich Buckler's excerpt here, he's going to tell you who Adam Austin is. And we're going to get to that. Rich Buckler on his own blog before he passed away, he wrote this 10 years ago. Swash Buckler Saturdays was his blog. I'll just read a little of it. We know that in the 60s, during the heyday of Marvel superheroes, Mickey DeMeo was Mike Esposito. Frankie Ray was Frank Giacoya. Gary Michaels was Jack Abel. Adam Austin, who I've already mentioned, was Gene Colin. Ever wonder why all these well known artists use pseudonyms? There had to be a good reason, right? Well, my guess, going by the information that I gleaned from a few conversations with Frank Giacoya and Mike Esposito, is that the big two, Marvel and DC, weren't tolerant at the time of freelancers working for the competition. These things lightened up a bit as the years went by and those creators boldly stepped forward using their real names instead. But uh, it wouldn't have remained a secret for long anyway. He says, In the comics business, artists have used pseudonyms, and for many and varied reasons. In the late 70s, I, Rich Buckler, used the name Validar. Validar. For many, many covers that I did for Marvel Comics. At the time, I was under contract to DC Comics. Rich Buckler, working for the competition, would have been viewed as a legal matter since my contract with DC was exclusive. I remember regretting the exclusive part almost immediately upon signing the deal. So legally, I wasn't allowed to work anywhere in comics other than DC under my own name. Bummer. What if I wanted to draw the Hulk or Spider-Man? What if I wanted to draw the Hulk or Spider-Man again? Which I did. Or some other character I, I was missing out on. Well, of course, I did, in fact, do that from time to time. And I urged Marvel to do it under a fake name. It was particularly risky since had this been found out, I would have been considered breach of my DC contact, my DC contract. He then says, you may be wondering why the name Validar, is that a name of an actual person? He says, it is. I corresponded with a comic book fan named Validar Ran way back in my fanzine publishing days. We never actually met, but we had an intriguing connection. We had several pen, pen we had, um, we were pen pals for six months. Eventually we fell out of touch. By using the name Validar in my professional work, I was hoping, I guess, that he may not—he may notice his name popping up on various published works of mine and that it would eventually smoke him out and we could reestablish our contact. This did not happen, alas. So um, that is the story. He ends it right there of his time. Now you can go, well, well, he was under contract. He shouldn't have been doing that. I'm not here to judge the actions of, of a dead man. Rich Buckler was a great contributor to so many comics. I can't even begin to tell you. Again, that's his Fantastic Four is when I was a kid. 146, 147, 148, 149. I mean, uh, I loved his work. And and, you know, people pointed out to me that he was doing kind of a, a version of Jack Kirby great. I didn't really I wasn't around for Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four. So in 1974, these books were fresh to me. And again, he went on to do Avengers work. And so much great DC work by 1978. He was doing great DC work, great Justice League covers. And again, the, the Treasury Edition, Captain Marvel, Shazam, slash Shazam, versus Superman is fantastic. It is, oh, that's a good looking comic. Um, he incorporated all all manner of different, he really went from a Jack Kirby based style to more of a Neil Adams based style. And I thought, I thought it was wonderful. And he carried that on in his work when he did All-Star Squadron, which was my personal favorite uh, work that he did. But, Again, I did not know he was Validar until 2015, 2014, and it was such, wow, I finally was able to make that connection. Now, who the hell is Steve Apollo? Well, Steve Apollo, in fact, was Jim Starlin, the same Jim Starlin that created Thanos, that gave you the Infinity War, the Infinity Gauntlet, Endgame, all of those stories, all those characters. He gave you Pip the Troll. He gave you Gamora. He gave you Drax the Destroyer. He went over to DC. He gave you Mongol. He gave you some of the most acclaimed. He didn't create Adam Warlock. He just didn't acclaimed run on Adam Warlock. He didn't acclaimed run on Captain Marvel. He did the two best Avengers annual annual events I've ever seen. Avengers Annual 7, Marvel 2-in-1 annual that connected a giant Thanos storyline where just all sorts of really consequential things happened. His art has always been exceptional and when I then found out that he was indeed Jim Starlin which I found out years later reading a fanzine in the 80s wait what Steve Apollo is Jim freaking Starlin what he had he had had a falling out with DC over the way uh they were uh treating him on his work on the uh on 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 uh, on the legion work that he was doing and so he asked to withdraw his name again. And, and, you know, I think they're, they, they were wise in, in regards to playing the long game. Cause none of them really needed to cooperate with this, but you know, they did it anyway. And, uh, the, 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 the whole deal was that, you know, you wanted to cooperate with this talent cause you wanted to build bridges. And the bottom line is the work as I, as I'm telling you, those issues are fantastic. But, uh, he just didn't want his Jim Starlin moniker on it, so he created a, a secondary one, and, and they ran with it, and kids like me were just bedazzled by who the hell was you know, Steve Apollo because it was in 1976 that Jim actually quit working for Marvel, and uh, he had a conflict with Jerry Conway, who was uh, the editor-in-chief prior to Shooter, and uh, Starlin had um, heard that there was an opening on Legion of Superheroes for pitches. And so he plotted and laid out a 35-page story uh, that that was one of my favorites. Joe Rubenstein inked it, and this is that same summer that he gave you these Avengers annuals and this Marvel 2-in-1 annual, which you have to check out, and they've been replanted multiple times. It is where Thanos took on Spider-Man, the Thing, and all of the Avengers and just whooped their asses and really established himself as the cosmic menace that they had been building to. And it really set the stage for everything that would happen in the years to come in Infinity Gauntlet and Infinity War and Infinity Crusade. But that same summer, he did this 35-page Legion of Superheroes story. And it's brilliant. And I have original art from those issues that I got in the last few years. And he signed that that work. He signed it. Jim Starlin and Joe Rubenstein, the same guy that inked him on the Avengers Annual and the Marvel 2-in-1 Annual in 1978, he inked these. So he really, really, uh, you know, just knocked it out of the park. It's Legion number 239 is one of my absolute favorites. Um, and, uh, so it ended with a mystery and, and, and Jim was going to, you know, follow up on this. And, and I've did an entire episode, an entire podcast on the DC implosion. And, uh, the DC implosion is directly uh, tied to, you know, what was going on, and um, he during this time, uh, because Paul Levitz, who is now the writer of Legion during the implosion, this follow up to to his two thirty nine story. Paul Levitz decided to intervene and rewrite a a, a section of it, and and he changed parts of the story. And so, you know, Jim was pissed off that um Paul was was meddling and so given that Paul Levitz changed and uh elements of 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 Jim's story, he asked that his name be taken off the project. And he said list me as Steve Apollo. It wasn't just that Paul Levitz rewrote Starlin's stories and, you know, deleted pages and added different pages. Um, Rubenstein was not available to do the finishes so that Jim felt the work was going to be compromised because Joe couldn't do it. And Starlin, on top of the meddling with with Paul Levitz, the reasoning goes that Jim had laid those out to really go with the finishes of Joe Rubenstein. They, They really polished each other again. I'm specifically speaking of a period in 1978 where Joe was inking everything he was doing. Marvel 2-in-1, The Avengers, and this uh, Legion of Super, Superboy in the Legion number 239. But because Dave couldn't do it and Dave Hunt, who was a fine inker, stepped in, uh, Jim felt the work would be compromised. Um, and, and, and of all of this, Levitts edited out 20 pages that Jim had wanted to do in this extended continuation of the story that he started in issue 239 um Jim sold those off a collector bought, bought them and uh and asked Jim Starlin to 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 finish those pages which are really interesting um but uh again so Jim just had an issue with how DC and specifically the guy who was running the legion at the time cuz Jim was again being In the 70s, both Marvel and DC were having a hard time getting their trains to be on time, so they would commission a lot of fill-in stories. And if Jim Starlin walks in with fill-in stories, you're kissing the ground. Because let me establish, this is after Jim has done his epic run on Captain Marvel and after he's done his epic run on Adam Warlock. Jim is a fan favorite. He is a celebrated creator. These Legion stories were him just tickling his kind of other creative, uh, you know, Uh, endeavors he he, he had the the, the Avengers annual and the Marvel 2 and one annual are the accumulation of the all of his critically acclaimed work on Captain Marvel and Adam Warlock coming together in these two big stories so then he's pivoting over to DC again because he had a falling out over at Marvel and he's he's having fun working on some big DC characters but uh but the bottom line is that that you know the first issue went off in the way that he liked but then the follow-up didn't and because there were Um, The splash page of 251 is actually not Jim. It's Joe Staten, and it's a bridging sequence that justifies some of the dropping of the pages that Paul Levitz did because Paul is helming the book. But again, fill-in issues were the norm. Even during Burns' amazing X-Men run, there is a fill-in early on uh, uh, that's dropped in. And on Cockrum's run, before John, there's there's fill-ins. Um, Bob Brown, Tony Dizaninga, got different artists are stepping in and they're a little jarring at times, but when I was a kid, that Legion 239 was so amazing. That's why Superboy and Legion Two Hundred and 251 looked so familiar to me, but with Dave Hunt's inking and the change of name, it threw me. So we've got Steve Apollo, we've got Rich Buckler. Well, who else was there? Well, let me tell you, I went to Foodland. Again, Foodland was only two blocks ahead of me giant, more, more of a, like a retail, you know, strip mall center. And there was the grocery store and it was food Landed at a great spinner rack. And I saw fantastic four. This was the first issue that John Byrne was coming on. It had been, I, I, I was now, uh, you know, following enough of what was going on in the, in, in the, uh, in, in the fanzines to know that, uh, to know, to know that, uh, that John Byrne was coming on the fantastic four. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the great thing was that I remember it's a, it's, it's this great cover. Um, and, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, I grabbed the cover to fantastic four, number two thirty two, which is the start of John's run epic five-year run on fantasy four and it's got Diablo on the cover and it has Diablo on the front page and it says John Byrne words and pictures but the inking says Bjorn Hein and in my head I said Bjorn Hein b-j-o-r-n-h-e-y-n and I'm looking at this first page and these killer inks I mean this is like I thought this was like Terry Austin level inking on John it's Bajorn Hein. Bajorn Hein? Who the hell is Bajorn Hine? B-J-O-R-N-H-E-Y-N. As I flipped through the book, right there in the Foodland, it hit me. That's a rearranging of John's name. And I looked at it again and I'm like, J-O-H-N is right there, John. And then you can spell Burn. John Byrne! John Byrne is misspelling his name. But why? For what reason i i literally was just laughing my ass off um and uh bajorn hein uh was just some fun that john byrne was having uh, i've never really heard a great justification for it and if you happen to know fantastic i'd love to know but i i knew it i knew that bajorn hein was john byrne and that was the only issue that he would use uh Hine, but but um you know what? Bajorn Hine would 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 go on to live again in a book that I'll tell you about just just for that one issue. And John must have just been having a fun time with readers like myself. There's no reason because cause then he inks every issue as John Byrne does it all. Story, pencil, inks, but I think he was having a fun time, maybe because he knew that this was the first time you were gonna see him uh without you know, Terry Austin or Joe Sinnott, and he played with this name, Bajorn Hine. Um, Bajorn Hine will will live again, and I'll tell you why. And it kind of dovetails into... Well, I'm not there yet. Look, let's talk about Adam Austin. Gene Colan is one of... It, it, Gene Colan fans are... Look, they're severe. That Gene Colan did acclaimed run runs on Iron Man. He's some people's favorite Iron Man artist. He did... Um, He did acclaimed runs on Daredevil, and then, for me, the best work that I'd ever seen him do. And he's very, he's very realistic. um, Just an amazing talent. I didn't really like him on superheroes, but I bought Tomb of Dracula because it was more, um, it was it was more of a realistic. No one could do clothing and the folds of shirts and jackets and pants, and his faces were exquisite. Gene Colan is an amazing artist. But when it came to more dynamics, the people who love him think he did them the best. He would later on at DC he would do a beautiful rendition of Wonder Woman. I mean, the guy is a Hall of Fame, amazing talent. He did Prince Namor, the Iron Man stuff, the Iron Man, Daredevil, and and some Doctor Strange, and definitely his Tomb of Dracula are acclaimed. They're acclaimed work. Look him up if you don't know Gene Colin. Um, amazing, but. In the mid-60s, he went by the name Adam Austin, as he was also being Gene Colan. Both DC and Marvel were vying for exclusivity on, on talents, especially guys like Gene. And so Gene decided to use the pseudonym Adam Austin on his early Marvel work. And um, this allowed Gene to continue doing the romance and the war um, comics that, that, that he was doing for DC while also working under Stan Lee, who rumor has it came up with the moniker for him, came up with the, uh, what, what, you know, um, came, came up with, with the the name, you know, Adam Austin. And, uh, but, but there was definitely a period of time that, uh, that Gene was working this is right this is early on in the in the in the in the Marvel days again Marvel was the they were the up and comer they were the underdog DC was the established hit with Superman Batman Wonder Woman and the Justice League okay so so Gene wanting to do this uh you know what w- was a natural but he wanted to protect what he had at DC and 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 you'll you'll notice that uh um you know in the letters column you know, uh, you know, everyone's trying to figure out the name behind Submariner's powerful penciler. Adam Austin, as most of you have guessed, Adam Austin is a non And one of these days we'll reveal who he really is. In 1966, they revealed that Adam Austin was in fact, Stan had took great pleasure in revealing that he was, uh, that, that, that Adam Austin was in fact Gene Colin, but this was, uh, so that gene could continue to do the work that he had been doing for dc comics which is is really what was what what, what had started paying all his bills but but eventually You know, he dropped the Adam Austin moniker and became Gene Colan full-time over at Marvel and went on to create these amazing works. So Adam Austin, Gene Colan, same guy. Steve Apollo, Jim Starlin, same guy. Bajorn Hine is a name John Byrne made up for him, inking himself on his very first issue of Fantastic Four. Sometimes, if you saw the signature Gemini, and it appeared on various Marvel works, Captain Marvel covers, Works along those lines. Gemini stands for Gemini, and the Jim is Starlin, and the I is Milgram. And again, they were Jim clearly had fun. Jim Starlin now having not one but two monikers: Steve Apollo and Gemini, uh, because again, Gemini is Jim and I. Jim Starlin and I Milgram. So, so they would do that together. Maybe it's because Jim was doing more layouts, and Al would do more finishes. Uh, which which was more of the more of the rendering and finished you know structure lines, but Jim Starlin really did have a good time with these different you know pen names. Stephen King wrote for years under the name Richard Bachman. Yes, Stephen King of It and Cujo and uh, <laughs> The Shining and The Stand and Carrie. That Stephen King w- wrote books under the name Richard bachman b-a-c-h-m-a-n so super successful super famous people you know a couple it seemed like a really crazy idea and it didn't turn out to be terribly successful but if you remember there was a i mean obviously garth brooks was a giant number one selling pop country sensation but in the late 90s he decided to become like a goth guy named chris Gaines, chris g-a-i-n-e-s if you look it up you'll see and it's like a different it's like Garth Brooks wanted to become a different identity and record different music. And it was almost seen as kind of a humorous sidestep. It wasn't taken seriously. The, the experiment wasn't successful. But sometimes people want to be somebody else, which leads you, me, me to me. We lead you to me. Because of recent times, I have been asked about a talent that I worked with named Paul Scott. And in fact, Paul Scott inked uh, brigade number one. If you look at Brigade number one, Paul Scott is an inker along with Norm Ratman. Paul Scott is my anchor on the covered X Force ten. The 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 one of one of my favorite covers ever that that I produced uh, depicting Deadpool battling. Um, it's like Deadpool's fifth, sixth appearance by then, because again we were we were really you know responding to the fans' demand, and uh, Deadpool is battling domino and beneath them in like a danger room setting is, uh, is Shatterstar. It's actually X-Force 11, the cover of X-Force 11. Um, as I look at it in all its splendid glory, you'll see Liefeld and the the name Scott, Scott underneath. And again, uh, I believe the cover to up to Brigade three, uh, was penciled by, um, Paul Scott and inked by Danny Mickey. If, if memory serves and Paul Scott would go on and Uh, involve himself in, uh, in, in several different inking and or penciling endeavors over the years. And people would ask me, whatever happened to Paul Scott? And then I realized, oh my gosh, I need to come clean on this. I am Paul Scott. Why? Why, Rob? Why were you Paul Scott? Well, it's easy. I can tell you in a nutshell. Paul Scott was created to not take all of the glory away from some of my new pencilers a guy like a Marat Michaels who I wanted to launch and have you enjoy him for him. But I wanted to make sure that I was there in order to kind of adjust or tweak whether it was the quality of the line work, the rendering um, maybe, maybe, maybe tweak a thigh here or an arm muscle here, or a chest peck, or a nose or an eye. That's what I could do as a finisher. Now I've, I've gone over in this podcast before where uh, Neil Adams had the Krusty Bunkers and sometimes uh, they would all jam and do different figure work and hair work. And he told me once he would always do the females. Some people would say, Neil, can I, you know, ink that beautiful red Sonia that John Buscema? No, I'm going to do the finishes on that. Uh, Krusty Bunkers was uh, part of the Neil Adams, um, part of the continuity studios. And it was made up of a ton of really super talented, uh, inkers and finishers. And they would all just grab a 22 page job and hand it in complete. And you may get, you know, a Neil Adams face or figure on an issue of Tarzan or an issue of Conan that John B. Semma did the rough breakdowns for, or, and sometimes, you know, he wouldn't do anything on the page, but l- lately I've held some of these pages in my hands as I've, as I've looked to, to purchase them, various issues of Conan and various issues of, uh, of of, of uh, Tarzan that, that John Buscema drew. And then again, we all know that, that it was a form of Krusty Bunkers, mainly Neil, who did finishes on Ross Andrews' epic Superman, Spider-Man, which I've done an entire podcast on the creation of that magnificent comic book, which is just a landmark in comic book publishing. But, you know, I wanted to act as 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 my own version of a Krusty Bunkers, but I didn't want to take the heat. I didn't want everyone to go, oh, it's just Rob Liefeld making Murat, you know, making this new guy, this brand new guy, this guy who's never done anything before, making him, you know, something that everyone loves. So I I decided to be Paul Scott, who would be an unknown, just like Marat, who could weigh in and ink or finish or tweak and and not have the credit go to Rob Liefeld because I wanted him to shine. And that's how I, then I became just playful with it. Using the name on X-Force 11 only gave the moniker even more you know, heat and then having him be the penciler of brigade three, which sold like a million copies. And I'm not saying that lightly. When I say a million, I mean a million. I'm not like, you know, not everything sold a million. I can't, I can't tell you that, you know, the day, the debut of glory sold a million. It didn't, it sold, you know, 600,000 copies. I know all these sales by heart. So the brigade launch, anything year one image that was coming out of extreme was hitting seven figures in sales. I wanted you to like Murat. I wanted you to think Norm Ratman was fantastic. It was these guys were in the limelight. Have you seen like, like a quarterback play his first playoff game? Sometimes they they choke up and they can't make those same throws because they're not relaxed. It's the, the the heat of the spotlight. And I was trying to take some of that heat off. And I would do that throughout my career. And sometimes Paul Scott would ride back into the fray and and add his um, name to the credits. And somebody even was like, hey. You know, why isn't this guy on a piece of original art and someone's like, you didn't ink this, Paul Scott inked this. And I'm like, oh, I forgot to tell you, I am Paul Scott. Um, That was a moniker I just put together. Sounded good, sounded quippy. And again, if you've ever seen Paul Scott, that is in fact Rob Liefeld. Now, Bajorn Hine and Paul Scott both rode to the rescue when I had extra pages that I needed inked. On my Snake Eyes Dead Game Dead Game Snake Eyes Dead Game number five finale, which had such luminaries as Jerry Ordway, as Carl Kiesel, as Neil Adams himself, as Wills Portacio, Murat, Michaels, Dan Frega, Ed Piscor, what Corey Hampshire, what a I mean, it was awesome. Superstar inking core, but there was just too many pages at the end of the day, so I had to call on Bjorn Hein because I figure if it's imaginary. Then I may also co-opt it, and I did. Buzorn Hine is credited in Snake Eyes, Dead Game Number Five, as is my good friend Paul Scott, who came back to help out his old buddy Rob Liefeld. So you guys never know—you never know who some of these superstar mysteries are. They are, in fact, the superstars. Okay, Steve Apollo is Jim Starlin. Adam Austin is Gene Colin. Okay. Bjorn Hine was John Byrne. These are credits in comics, sometimes multiple comics. Paul Scott is your humble host, Rob Liefeld. Validar, the, the illustrator of so many great covers was Rich Buckler. Gemini is Jim Starlin and Al Milgram. And Richard Bachman, as I've told you, is also known as the acclaimed Stephen King. Uh, So many crazy mysteries of comic books. I hope this one was enjoyable for you. I hope you can now understand what I did. I didn't know for years Steve Apollo, this badass who who came out of nowhere. And maybe maybe you guys know of some other monikers that I don't. Feel free to share them with me. I'd love to talk about them on the show. But those are some heavy hitters. Jim Starlin, Gene Colan, John Byrne, Rich Buckler, Starlin and Milgram, and myself. We are not shrinking violets to the comic book world. We, we uh, have boldly gone where others dare not. And sometimes we did it while not admitting to being who we were. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed this. You know, look behind the curtain of the names that you didn't know were really the names you knew. Okay, I hope that I hope you guys enjoyed this. What a fun time. I hope really I hope some of that was news to you. Um, And again, if you see the moniker M hands or D hands on a comic book, that means diverse hands. That means many hands. It was something that Marvel themselves uh, did many times other than Krusty Bunkers. There are Avengers issues that are called D hands. That means diverse hands and pages because I have actually pages from those issues. There's absorbing man issues. I don't know the numbers. Uh, Maybe in the 80s, uh, John Byrne. Klaus Jansen inked pages, Terry Austin inked pages, Joseph Rubenstein inked pages, Al Milgram inked pages, uh, all manner of superstar talent, Dan Green, Bob McLeod weighed in. And at the end of the day, it was a diverse hands. But instead of deline- delineating every single person, they put D hands and sometimes M hands. M hands stands for many hands. Diverse hands is D hands. So guys, again, hope you enjoyed this uh, peek behind the curtain where where we unmasked, some of those mysteries, some of those names like myself that you may not have seen. And again, the most modern one, again, Bjornhine and Paul Scott uh, are are the most recent. They did recent work, okay? Validar is not coming back to us because he passed when Rich Buckler passed. Who knows if Jim Starlin will feel the need to be Steve Apollo. Once again, it's actually like a great actor and or wrestling name. And again, in movies, if a director takes his name off a movie, I'm sure you guys have heard of an Alan Smithy film as a director who through conflict or embarrassment doesn't want his name on that project. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in each and every week. We will have different mysteries of comic books. I've had the feedback that you guys give me is so essential because you guys love knowing some of this stuff that frankly, I know too much of, but I love sharing it with you guys. And I always will share it with you guys. Here are a couple of really interesting, um, reviews that I got of, of late. And I want to, um, to, to tell you guys that, uh, that I, I truly, truly uh, cannot tell you enough how much I appreciate, uh, getting your generous, uh, your, your very, very generous, uh, reviews and, and we need them, guys. We absolutely need them at all times. Um, I, 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 I th- We, we are so um, just appreciative of every single time that you guys go out of your way to leave a uh, t- to to leave a a positive review for the show. We need them. Like I said, we absolutely one hundred percent need them now more than ever because because these these are um, really what help. Uh, position us on all the different platforms so what wherever you're reading or or leaving these reviews i appreciate them so much i read them here at the end of every show so if you leave one know that i will get to it and i'll read them as far as i know i've read every single one that has been left at this time so here we go today i'm going to read two of them this um is a really funny one uh from from david who says uh, Diary of a Comic Book Madman. He gave us five stars. Your stars and your recommendations and your and your reviews are so important to us. Thank you so much. It says, This podcast is a must for every comic fan. Rob is so enthusiastic and goes into so many interesting details. To any non-comic book fan, he must sound like a raving lunatic. Yes, I do. Uh, but to me, he makes perfect sense. Agree or not, he knows his comics for sure. Thank you, David. Now, we have one more. This was um, Heartfelt. It's from Big Kurt. Thank you, Big Kurt. It says, um, Rob is a genuine and entertaining creator. He also gives us five stars. Thank you very much. It says, the first time I met Rob was years ago at his awesome entertainment booth at Wizard World Chicago. I remember waiting to get a signature when someone walked by. This would be, by the way, in 1997-98. When someone walked by and yelled an expletive at Rob, Rob laughed and shrugged it off, kept signing and talking to his fans. Since then, I've seen him numerous times throughout the years getting sketches and signatures. This year, I was able to talk to Rob at C2E2. I told him how much I enjoyed the podcast, and he literally was so excited to hear and ask me follow-up questions about it. He was genuinely interested in me and my opinions. I have met many creators, dealers, and fans in my lifetime of comic book fandom, and I have never come across someone as positive and as approachable as Rob Liefeld. I hope this podcast continues as long as his career in comics has. Thank you, Big Kurt. That is so generous. Um, I this, this last year when I went out on the road, and again, all the aforementioned places, I did multiple stops in Florida in early July, uh, Arizona later July. Uh, in the fall, uh, I, I went to, uh, in the spring of last year, I was in Texas. In the fall, I was in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. You guys are so quick to mention the podcast, and I'm still getting used to You guys reacting to it, I I just, I'm in such a conditioned mindset about the comic books that I'm never, ever thinking about the podcast. When you guys mention it to it, it mentioned the podcast to me. It is so heartwarming. I enjoy it so much. I am so grateful that you guys listen and that you enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you for your reviews. Thanks for all the positive that you guys are putting out there in the universe about Rob observations. I appreciate it. I'm going to be here. I'm going to keep doing this. Occasionally, I'll have to take some breaks, but know that there is no end in sight for this podcast in the foreseeable future. You guys, on social media, I am on Twitter at Robert Leifel, the whole name, at Robert Leifel. That's me with a blue check. That means I'm the real deal. I love talking to you guys, hearing from you guys, exchanging ideas, comments. I love hearing from you. Talk to me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Again, blue check. I love reading your comments, your DMs, your messaging. Um, I'm I'm so excited to talk to you guys on all these different platforms. So at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. uh, I am all over Facebook. This page, Rob observations with Rob Liefeld has a Facebook page so you should find that like it share it with your friends uh, make comments I am in all manner of groups we have a Rob Liefeld extreme group uh, you should hook up with over on Facebook we I love hearing from you guys Uh, I try and share as much art ideas comments as I possibly can thank you for taking this ride with me thank you for loving comics and pop culture as much as I do and participating in this every single week this is the time of the show that we assure each other we make that promise we're going to take good care of each other We're going to get the rest we need. We're going to eat good food. We're going to relax. We're going to watch fun stuff. We're just going to chill because there's times that we just got to, you know, let it all soak in and and slow it down. And that's what you're going to do because, because you're going to be better off. And I know it. And I would just ask you to make sure and circle back and meet me here. Stay safe. We will be back together very soon. And I can't wait to talk to you then.